0: A reading from the letter to the Hebrews. Now God did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking to angels. But someone has testified somewhere. What are human beings that you are mindful of them? Or mortals that you care for them? You have made them for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. Now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them. But we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
2: Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we uh, continue in our worship and we think on your word and we think on the teaching of the Apostles' Creed this morning, would you you help us to fix our eyes on Christ, uh, the author, the perfecter of our faith, that we might know him, that we might struggle with him, and that we might respond uh, as persons uh, of faith to him and find hope uh, for the lives that you call each of us to live. We pray uh, in Jesus' name, uh, amen. So, uh, so in these weeks leading up to Pentecost, we are looking at the teaching of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and one of the reasons we're doing this is just simply to remind ourselves of truths of, of um, the knowledge of God that has shaped and characterized the Christian church from its very earliest days. You know, the church is a community of people that are trying to take very seriously the meaning of Jesus' life and of his death and of his resurrection and of his promise to return Uh, and so we're trying to live in a hopeful way in the midst of our world that takes us through all kinds of things in life some of which are joyful and some of which you know bring us a lot of of laughter uh, and enjoyment and pleasure but a lot of which uh, just reminds us very steadily frankly that we live in a world of suffering Uh, a world of brokenness a world in which death uh, remains a profound reality that threatens human life and all that we value and the creed um, uh, tells us something about the god who has revealed himself in jesus uh, so that we would be a community shaped through and through by this knowledge and this experience of God himself. Now, it's important to remember, uh, well, first let me say this, you know, when, whenever Christians, or really probably any human society, uh, creates words or confessions of their belief or value statements or any, anything that we do, one of, the, one of the risks that we have with that is that we subtly just begin to take for granted those things, right? Or, on the one hand, or on the other hand, we think that if we can just sort of nail down specifics if we can just get God right on paper right that that we're fine but the point of the creed we've said is not that it is experience it is knowledge it is that we would lift our eyes off of the creed and actually behold uh, the glory of a God who has revealed himself in Jesus so uh, the metaphor that we used last week to explain that and think about that is that um, the creed is a map it's not the landscape to which it points or gestures toward, right? And the point is that you and I would be in the landscape of God's person, that we would know him and experience him. Leslie Newbigin, uh, a pastor, a missionary in India for decades of his pastoral life, he observed that one of the very provocative and risky things about Christianity is that when Jesus um, ascended into heaven, and, right, ascended into God's world, that he left behind not a confession, not a creed, and not even a book that had sort of dropped, as it were, from heaven itself, but he left a community of people that had experienced him, right? Uh, How does Peter describe it? That which our hands have touched, our eyes seen. He left this community of the church, people that had experienced Jesus and had experienced the reality of his resurrection, experienced his kingdom come in some measure, He left them to bear witness to the story of all that God was doing in Jesus Christ. Um, And that continues down through the ages in the life of the church, uh, which is why being a part of the community of God's people is such an important way of exploring and discerning who God actually is and knowing who God is. Uh, This is the, the great sort of challenge of Christianity and also its weakness because the church gets it wrong (laughs) so much of the time. We don't bear adequate witness to the glory of who Jesus is, and yet that is our calling. So we're looking at the creed in order to think about uh, God differently and lift our eyes up that we might experience him in a way. And last week, we looked at that section of the opening section of the creed that calls us to belief itself, and that specifically calls us to begin to think on what might it be for us to be a community that relates to God, our Father, right? Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. This morning, we're coming to the core part of the creed, which is that which it has to say of Jesus himself, right? Uh, And this morning, we're going to look at the very front end of what it has to say about Jesus. Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, Now as you think about that, that's a lot to be talking about in the context of one little sermon. So we're not going to talk about all of that, right? Obviously. But essentially what we're doing this morning is we're looking at that little sketch within the creed that specifically talks about Jesus' life incarnate upon the earth. His earthly life. So if the creed is mapping out our quest to know God and giving us things to look at, what should we be looking at in these lines out of the creed. So first let me say this, the creed names Jesus the only son of God, our Lord. That is the unique son of God, our Lord. And without saying much more about that, the point is simply something like this, that you and I as followers of Jesus are called upon to acknowledge the uniqueness of his own sonship. Now we are sons and daughters of God because of Jesus. And we said last week when we were looking at that phrase that God is our father, that we're not meant by that to project upon God our own good or bad experiences of our earthly fathers or earthly mothers or earthly parents or your primary caregiver, whoever that person may have been in your life. We're not meant to sort of take those experiences rich as they may have been or as loaded with poverty as they may have been and project them upon God, but rather... We are meant to understand the uniqueness of Jesus' sonship, his relationship with the Father, and to recognize that by virtue of his sonship, he invites us into a unique way of relating to God in the same way that he related to God, his life with God. So his sonship becomes primary. And so when we speak of his unique sonship or his his being the only son of God, we're calling attention to that fact the uniqueness of his revelation of what it means to be the son of God. Our Lord, here we're just very simply beginning to sort of touch on that Jesus is at the very front end. He's at the very core, the very center of all that God wants us to know. He's the leader. Uh, he's Messiah within the Jewish frame of reference. He's king within the frame of reference. He's, he's at the very core of all that God wants us to know. And what does he want us to know? And the rest of this, this, tray, this section of the creed leads us into a reflection on the suffering of Jesus Christ in our behalf. So let's think about that. The only son, our Lord, was born into our world by the spirit of the Virgin Mary. Now sit with that for a moment. The moment you begin to think about some aspects of the life of Jesus, uh, in our age, in a scientific moment, we begin to stumble around, right? You get hung up on words like, born of a virgin how could this happen right um and what's very interesting to me is that when you read the narratives of of um of jesus's life and you read the story of mary or the story of joseph for example one of the things that you begin to recognize in their story is that they stumbled upon it as well right mary's response to the annunciation is is what her response is how can this be in other words, she knew herself to be a virgin. She knew herself to not be capable. And so she's perplexed, right? This is perplexing to me. Or you look at Joseph's, Joseph's part of the story. His part of the story is, well, I can't, we can't be married. This has, to, this has to come to an end. This trajectory has to come to an end. And yet, in both of those stories, it is with the angelic pronouncement, it's with the encounter of God's presence that they begin to understand and take the story of what God is doing into their hearts very differently. In other words, their lives, instead of becoming a rejection of that which God wants to do, becomes a great yes to that which God wants to do. And as curious as something like the virgin mirth may be for us, I think really the greater surprise and the greater mystery is something else altogether. It is the birth of God as a person inside of our world. It is that God would do such a thing. Think about this. The story of Jesus urges us to recognize that the Christian God chose to take unto himself the limitations of being a human being as the supreme way by which he would reveal himself to us. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us so that we might behold the hidden and unseen glory of God. It wasn't enough to sort of hang on to omnipotence and greatness in the space of the heavenly realm. It was absolutely essential to God himself that he reveal himself in the context of our lives, and our world, in our skin, so that we would behold his likeness. In a way that would otherwise have been absolutely impossible that is the greatest mystery of all when you think about um, this story of jesus what the creed is urging us to recognize is that god took on flesh so that we might know him and it was his quest to know us The Hebrews text that we read recalls the greatness of human vocation, and it references Psalm 8. You can go back and read the Psalm 8. It's a a beautiful psalm in the Old Testament that is a celebration, among other things, of just the greatness of humanity. God has situated upon our lives a calling to reflect him in the world as the steward of this earthly life. It is a tremendous call. It is a tremendous vocation. And yet the author of Hebrews is recognizing what? In the midst of that, that we don't see that happening very well. There's a brokenness to our expression of this. There's something inadequate about it. And yet the author of Hebrews here, in recalling these great words out of Psalm 8, begins to situate them inside of the life of Jesus himself, who reveals God to us and who also reveals us ourselves to us Jesus entered the world of our calling he took it up as one of us he became for a little while lower than the angels one of us he not only reveals God's likeness but our own likeness in other words he gives us a map not just of God but of our own human selves what we are to be like in our own skins as persons created in the likeness of God and so that brings us to another section of the creed where we begin to focus more explicitly on Jesus' life as one who suffers. The author of Hebrews here says that Jesus learned perfection through his suffering. It's interesting, of all of the things that you could have think you could think of to talk about Jesus' life, Stacy and I were talking about this just the other night. You know, you read the Gospels and there, there, there's a lot there. Uh, in the story of Jesus, right? You could think about uh, that great moment at the feast of the wedding at Cana, for example, when they run out of wine and Jesus says, oh, the party doesn't have to stop, it can go on. I'm gonna create more wine out of water and it does go on, right? Uh, you could think about the, the feeding of the 5,000. You could think about the, the persons that he healed. You could think about his interactions with Gentiles. You could think about his interactions with with, with the sick, the persons at the margin and just on and on and on we could go. in the stories, of Jesus, maybe you would sort of situate and say, let's let's revisit the Sermon on the Mount because that's where we have such wisdom of Jesus, where he's articulating this beautiful story of God's kingdom. But the focal point of the creed is that he suffered under Pontius Pilate in a way that ended in his crucifixion, a criminal crucifixion within the context of the Roman Empire and his death and his burial. God became a person in our real world, not an ideal world. He entered the world that was characteristic of the world that you and I know, a world of suffering. He entered a world that was weighted down by the reality of suffering, the vulnerability of his own childbirth, the vulnerability of birth into a family that lacked financial means, the vulnerability of a family that was very quickly sort of situated inside of a refugee status so that they're on the run from persons that would take their lives. And on and on, Jesus' early story begins to unfold in this way lots and lots of vulnerability suffering jesus experienced all the ordinary needs that you and i experience think about that relational physical health issues do you ever feel lonely jesus life was a life of loneliness do you ever feel rejection jesus experienced profound rejection do you ever experience betrayal jesus experienced betrayal Do you experience injustice from the hands of other people? Have you ever experienced injustice? We just read a story, or we experienced in our own city, a profound story that became viral, injustice at a Starbucks. Jesus experienced injustice in our world. It's interesting that when the story here situates us in this phrase under Pontius Pilate, The authors of the creed, the history of the Christian church, is not only locating Jesus in a specific moment of time and history and place, but he's locating Jesus inside of an experience of institutional oppression and injustice. Because guess what? The political world for Jesus did not work for him. The religious world for Jesus did not work for him. Pick any strata of institutional life, and there's opposition to the person of who Jesus is. He encountered and he experienced the kinds of problems in the world that characterize our own lives. And problems that even today, when we try to think about these things really hard, and even when we feel like there's something really wrong about these problems, we lack the ability to fix them. I was reading about the Starbucks incident and, you know, Starbucks has beautifully, honestly responded in some sense with an apology, but also with a commitment to training. But the article was suggesting, you know, can you train this stuff away? And The answer is no. Human beings have lacked the ability to change our world and Jesus enters our world as it is. He experiences the reality of our world, that we might know God and that we might be known by God. That's what Jesus desires for us. Think about your own suffering for just a moment. Just pull it in more personally. What do you do with your experience of pain in life that's not a great you know you wanted to come and be encouraged I'm going to ask you to think about some hard stuff for just a moment what are the you know we've all had pain in our lives right and it started very early on in our lives inside of our family of origin you know by no fault of our parents necessarily but we just experience a world that doesn't work and you grew up in a family and whether it was a great family or a, or a terrible family you experience pain in your world and your mother or father, as much as they loved you, they could not control that pain in your behalf. You experience it. So how have you learned to live with it? What do you do with it? Most of us seek to avoid it in some way, right? We sort of seek to dampen it in some way. We seek to alleviate it in some way. We always are trying to make a bitter life sweet. That's what we do, and it makes sense that we would try to do just that. We seek to avoid pains, and we have lots of ways that you and I deny or avoid pain in our lives. So some of you, right, and some of us, we think about some of the ways we've tried to do that in our lives is we've, we've done it through being the good kid. You know, maybe you were in the family and you just thought, I am just, I'm going to get it right all the time. You know, at least as far as my parents can see, right? I'm going I'm to do all the right things. I'm going to fit in on all the right ways. I'm going I'm to be a hardworking student and I'm going to progress and I'm going to achieve in life. I'm going to make straight A's and I'm going to go to the University of Pennsylvania and some of you have. We have all kinds of very functional ways that the world applauds. It says that's the way to avoid pain. You succeed. Go, girl. But we also have a lot of other ways that we avoid pain. Some of us just withdraw, right? You just sort of suck it all in and you just retreat into yourself. The moment the conflict starts rolling, you become ever so quiet. Some of us sort of indulge in different kinds of things, and sometimes it's just, you know, I think what will make me happy and what will help me avoid pain is if I can find a spouse and I can actually get married. That being in marriage will actually help me avoid pain. Guess what? It doesn't. Or you think that being married and, or, or maybe having children is going to help you avoid pain. Guess what? I, it doesn't. And so we just lean into all of these kinds of things. We, we focus, we obsess on a lot of really great things that God's given us to enjoy in life. And we think that somehow they're going to help us avoid pain and avoid pain and avoid the brokenness. Or we have more dysfunctional ways, right? Some of us indulge in food. You know, you get you feel the pain and you go to the refrigerator. Or, you know, it's, it's chips and salsa for me sometimes. You know, it's like that. yesterday was a chips and salsa day for me, honestly. You know, I got to have it. Some of you sort of engage in sexual activity in a way that's, not healthy some of us sort of focus on drugs or maybe it's alcohol or just you know it's just different kinds of ways that we seek to escape the painfulness of life in this world how are you trying to do that see my point is just simply this that we all do this everyone no one avoids doing that we do not live freely with God and we do not live freely with ourselves and we do not live freely with our neighbor, and we do not live freely with our vocations. We use all of these things to sort of prop up our life in the midst of a broken world. The story of Jesus' life as it's told through this sort of thumbnail sketch of the creed is a life of profound engagement, not avoidance of pain. Jesus just gets close to it. He goes right into it, he moves into it, he moves beneath it. He doesn't avoid the hard stories of life, he takes them into his own life. And that's what the creed wants us to think about. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, buried. The story of his life was a story of walking in our shoes in a sense experiencing the painfulness of this broken world to the point of it taking and snuffing out his own life he's crushed beneath it so when john the baptist in john's gospel as we read earlier reflects on who jesus is with his disciples he looks on jesus in the temple language right immediately comes to his mind behold there he is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world jesus's life his baptism is a baptism into suffering that will move steadily up through all of the beautiful things that he did, representing the kingdom of God come, up through the moment of his own crucifixion, his death, his burial. Now, what do we do with this in our lives? The Creed's answer is in the first line. Believe in it. (laughs) Believe in it. And what does that mean? Last week we talked about, the problem of belief, to some degree, right, that, that in our context, when we begin to talk about what does it mean to believe in God... We begin, we sort of, uh, that feels like a weird thing to ask some people to do, particularly if you've grown up and sort of lived and inhabited a secular space. And if you've inhabited a scientific intellectual space, we feel like we have to have all the data points down before we can believe in God. But the point of the creed is not sort of belief in a scientific or even a rational or philosophical manner. The point of the creed is to call you to relationally trust God. Will you entrust yourself to this God? Our challenges with God are that we're not natural-born seekers of God. Uh, C.S. Lewis suggests that, we're, that our quest for God, our presumed quest for God, is a little bit more like a mouse in quest of a cat, right? It's more of a mouse searching for a cat. We don't, they don't do that. Newbegin, as he reflects on this, he says that we like to imagine ourselves as natural-born seekers. We're just We're open people, and we live in a very progressive community, so we imagine ourselves to be these really open people. That if you just give me all of the right data points, guess what? I'm going to do my research and I'm going to assemble them in all the best possible ways. And I'm going to make a good judgment. That's who I am. That's what I've learned to do. But the reality of the story of Jesus, Newbegin says, points out that we have not done that with Jesus. God has made himself available to humanity in the story of who Jesus is with the kind of clarity that we would never imagine possible. Truth in person, in our world. And so if you situate yourself back in those days of Jesus and you imagine those interactions of Jesus, people experiencing, you're in the crowd of 5,000 and you eat the food. You watch the healing moment. You see the man lowered from the ceiling and he rises You experience something of the beauty of who Jesus is. And yet, the story of Jesus is just this. That humanity, across all spheres of life, is confused by him, misunderstands him, rejects him, moves against him, betrays him, crucifies him. Jesus' story tells us we're not natural-born seekers of God. But Jesus' story tells us that he was a natural born seeker of us. He longed to know us, he longed to be known by us. The kind of knowledge that is appropriate to God is not rational scientific data collection that we sometimes want and require of different things in our world. It's not solving a research puzzle, but it's the kind of knowledge that's appropriate to the most human intimate relationships. And in the space of those human relationships, what happens I know you because you let me in. Stacey and I said vows to each other almost 30 years ago. We're getting close to 30. I think we're in 29 this year. But, you know, I, I think. I do know that we're in 29, by the way. <clears throat> so we say those, those marriage vows to one another. And you know what? The journey of being married is just a journey of continually being willing to open up and be seen by the other. To not run away from the other. The gaze of the other. And what Jesus is calling us into with God is that kind of a space in which God says, I would know you, and I would let you know me. Look at what Jesus reveals to you about me. That is my gift to you. The knowledge that we possess inside of our deepest relationship isn't simply our own achievement, It's the gift of the other. And it's never complete. It's always unfolding. It's always growing. It's always moving in one direction or another. It's not static. And so whether you've been a Christian for a very long time or a very short time or not at all, the invite is the same. Would you know me? Would you know what I reveal of myself to you? That's what God offers. The creed invites us to receive the gift of that which God is showing us in Jesus himself. And it is this story of Jesus who suffers, in one sense, that makes God most trustworthy. Because he's so willing to get near us in our suffering. His quest for us, not our quest for him, is the point. And the offer for us is that we might know him. The story of Jesus is God's search to find you, to draw you into the greatness of his love for you, to so situate your life inside of that love that when we exit the church gathering in just a few moments, that in the landscape of your life, however complex it is right now, However joyful or however sorrow, however threatening or however satisfying, however safe it feels, whatever you are experiencing in your world or you will experience this week, that what would mark your interactions with God, with yourself, your own story, with one another, with your vocation, in all of the spaces that you will walk this week would be the love that God has for you in Jesus. Rowan Williams Says that only three three individuals are mentioned in the creed: Jesus, Mary, and Pontius Pilate. Jesus is mentioned, the core, and there is the one Mary who says yes to him, and the one who says no to him, Pilate. You could say that those three names map out the territory in which we all live our lives. Through our lives, we, are, we, are, we swing toward one pole or the other, toward a deeper yes or towards a deeper no. In the middle of it all stands the one who makes sense of it all, Jesus, the one into whose life we must all try to grow, who can work with our yes, whatever it may be, and who can even overcome our no. See, the story of Jesus keeps being told and retold through the community of God's people. It's not enough to simply give people Bibles. It's not enough simply to hope they get good Christian literature in their hands. It's not enough that sort of we have some sort of statement of faith that sort of clearly nails God down on paper in some sense. People need to behold the beauty of this God In the context of the community of God's people who are experiencing him and who are being transformed into his likeness because the community of God's people is the place in which they're experiencing God's yes to them so where are you this morning in your own quest and your own swinging around the poles let these words of the Creed sort of lift your eyes to behold a God who has loved you in the person of Jesus and respond to him with your yes. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these words and we think on scripture and we think as we gather to your table, that we would behold the glory of a Savior who has loved us and who did not avoid suffering, but took it into himself in the deepest possible ways in the fullest possible expression that we might know that you withhold nothing from us. So help us to know that and help us to respond with our yes to you, we pray in Jesus' name.